say? First Samuel chapter 12. Let me let me bring you up to date because we started a new section in first Samuel. All right. Now, I know it's going to be hard to, to, to study with me here. It's going to take some extra effort. So I'm going, to, I'm going to preach quick, but I want you to really, really tune in, okay? The nation of Israel, we go back to chapter 8, and the nation of Israel asked for a king. Okay, they're tired of theocracy. They're the only nation in all the world where God is their king. They can't see God. They can't demand anything of God. God can't lead them physically in battle. And they get tired of that. They want to be like all the other nations. They want a monarchy led by a real visible, tangible king. Samuel stands before them and says, God doesn't want you to have a king. You don't need a king right now. He, he's going to give you one in the future, but you don't want one. He doesn't want you to have one right now. Well, they refuse to listen. They demand a king. So God issues the worst form of judgment maybe that God can issue. And that's when he gives you what you want when what you want is not what he wants. Oh, man, that's, a, that's not a good thing. If God says no, stop asking. But, but sometimes God, God will say yes to show you that what you asked for was wrong in the first place. And that, that's what he did. And he gave him King Saul. And Brother Tanner really did well in chapters 9 and chapters 10, showing us that, that King Saul seemed to be everything they wanted on the outside. He was strong on the outside, but he was weak on the inside. He was fearful. He was spiritually passive. He was inexperienced. And he was irresponsible. Yet, God does what he always does, makes the best of a bad situation, put his spirit on Saul, even though Saul wasn't his choice, and even helps him win his first military victory against the Ammonites in chapter 11. We get to the end of chapter 11, which introduces really the transition into chapter 12, and Samuel holds this, this ceremony. After they win this de, uh, definitive victory against the Ammonites, um, then Samuel is going to crown, officially crown Saul as the first king of Israel. And, and, and verses 12 through verses 15 uh, kind of document how that happened in a place called Gilgal. Now, here's what this meant for Samuel. Watch here. When Samuel crowned Saul as the first official king, that meant Samuel's role in the nation of Israel is about to change as well. Samuel has been kind of the top dog, humanly speaking. He's been their judge. A and now... He's going to have to take a step down in, in the human ladder of leadership. And now he's no longer the judge as, as he's always been. But King Saul is the leader they're going to look to. And so Samuel begins in chapter 12 what many call his farewell address. Not because he was about to die. He, in fact, is going to help them transition out of King Saul and into King David in a few chapters from now. But really, he's, he's saying farewell to his role as they and he always knew it. Their relationship was going to change. And in doing so, this speech, maybe you could even call it a sermon from heaven, out of the mouth of Samuel, Samuel really puts on display one of my favorite attributes of God, and that's God's grace. There's a lot of directions I could go with preaching chapter 12. I could make three or four sermon, sermons out of it. But I'm going to survey it uh, because I feel like, like, like maybe the, the, the intention for the original readers, which would have been hundreds of years after this was written to the exiled believers. I feel like, like, like one of the main intentions that, that God would have inspired this for his original audience, which would have been those exiled believers, was to show them that you might really mess things up. But I have a lot of grace. You might ask for things that I tell you you shouldn't ask for. I might give them to you. He might or she might or they might or, or it might not be what you wanted once you got it. But I can make the best of it. And, and so he's going he's gonna to talk about this, this multidimensional aspect of God. And that's his grace. And, and, and by the way, God's grace does have many dimensions to it. 
You need to understand this. God's grace, as we know it, sometimes we think of grace as we instantly go to the, to the warm, fuzzy part of grace. Whew, God, God's grace forgives. That's great. And we're going to talk about that. But God's grace is more than just he forgives. There's a lot more dimensions to it. In fact, I'm going to show you four dimensions from this text about God's grace. My, my goal, the purpose, is that you would appreciate his grace and live in his grace more after hearing this message. The first 19 verses teach us this aspect of God's grace. You ready? Write it down. Grace convicts. Grace convicts. Samuel starts his sermon. And, and, and you know conviction is, is like a judicial term. And Samuel kind of uses that approach in the first 19 verses. He puts himself on trial. He puts God on trial. With basically this, this idea. I want to convict you, children of Israel, and show you. That I, as your spiritual leader, am innocent. God, as your king of kings, is innocent. And what you've gotten yourself into is your fault. And so Samuel didn't open up his farewell address with, hey, God's grace is good. You just wipe your hands clean. You walk in his grace. You live in his grace. You're forgiven. He has to first get them to a point of conviction. And that's what he does. Look at verses 1 through 5. And Samuel said unto Israel, behold, I have hearkened unto your voice and all that you said unto me, and have made a king over you. And now behold, the king walketh before you, and I am old and gray-headed. Behold, my sons are with you, and have walked before you from my childhood unto this day. Behold, here I am. See, he's putting himself on, 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 on trial. And, and the Israelites are the witnesses. He says, witness against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose ass have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or whose hand have I received any bribe to blind my eyes therewith? And I will restore it to you. And they said, thou hast not defrauded us nor oppressed us, neither hast thou taken aught of any man's hand. And he said unto them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day, that ye have not found aught in my hand. And they answered, He is witness. Now I want you to notice a key word in, 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 in verse number uh, 3. When Samuel begins to question them rhetorically, he says this, Behold, here am I, witness against me before the Lord, and before his anointed. Watch this. He said, Whose ox have I, what's that next word? Taken. Or who's ass? Or donkey? Have I? What's the next word? Taken. Now, this is significance of what the narrator's doing here and what Samuel's doing here. Because you go back to when they first asked for a king in chapter 8. And Samuel stands before them and he gives a speech. He gives a sermon. And in his warning against a king, the key word of that speech was the word take. And he told them, here's why you don't want a king. Because when you get a king, he'll take from you. You think a king will give to you. All a king will do is take. He'll take your sons. He'll take your daughters. He'll take a portion of your crops. He'll take a portion of your land. You'll have to pay taxes. And that's what false kings and false idols do in our life. They promise to give, but all they do at the end is take. Samuel then compares himself to the king that they replaced him and God with. And he says this, I haven't taken from you. I haven't defrauded you. I haven't oppressed you. I haven't done what Saul is about to do. But, but, but you ignored my warning. You ignored my generosity towards you for all these years. And I want you to know, I'm innocent. It is not my fault. It's yours. And we saw the children of Israel were shaking their heads saying, Amen, you're right. We can't disagree with that. But Samuel didn't stop there. He put God on trial next. 
I'm not going to read the verses, but verses 6 through verses 12 highlight how faithful God had been through Israel's history in spite of Israel's unfaithfulness. It started when Samuel took God, them all the way back to how God treated them while they were in Egyptian bondage. Listen, the Israelites didn't look up to heaven in the book of Exodus when they were under Egyptian bondage and say, deliver us, God. They didn't do that. They weren't even in a relationship with Yahweh. Jesus pursued a relationship, or God pursued a relationship with them. God chose them in spite of the fact that he knew in his, omnip- uh, in, his, in his all-knowing aspect of God, he knew that they would not be faithful to him. He chose them anyway. And, and then he pointed them to the days of the judges where even though God chose them and loved them, they chose to be unfaithful to God. But, but when they cried out to God, God would send them a deliverer, a deliverer like uh, Gideon, a, a deliverer like Samson, and, and all the other deliverers in the book of Judges. That is God's grace and faithfulness in their life. And then he even reminds them of just chapter 11, when in spite of them replacing God, with an earthly king, God still saw to it that that they had victory over Nahash and the Ammonites. What is Samuel doing? Why is he putting God on trial? He's wanting them to know that the situation they find themselves in is not Samuel's fault and it's not God's fault. In fact, this first point, it climaxes in verse 13. Look at it. Now, therefore, behold the king whom, watch the pronoun, ye have chosen and whom ye have desired. Listen to me, church. When it comes to our sin, we are not victims. I want to say it again. I need to get an amen there. When it comes to our sin, we are not victims. We are volunteers. Nobody makes us sin. People sin against us. We're the victims of other people's sin. But we, we don't sin because we have to. We sin because we choose to. But Samuel still isn't done. He still wants to bring them to an even deeper point of conviction. And I'm going to show you. Look at verse 16 and 17. He says, now therefore, after I've proven it's not my fault and God's fault, I want you to stand and see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call on the Lord and he shall send thunder and rain that you may perceive and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking you a king. Look up here. Samuel called for a thunderstorm during harvest time. Harvest time in that day for the Israelite farmer fell during the months of May and June. In the Middle East, it never rained during the months of May and June. But that is exactly the point. Samuel needed to get their attention through a miracle. And the verse tells us why. He says, so that they will come to a point where they perceive how serious their wickedness and their sin was in replacing God with an earthly king. In other words, I'm going to send this storm in in a time when it doesn't rain because they need to feel a deep sense of conviction. And and that's exactly what happened. Look at verse 18. So Samuel called him to the Lord and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said unto Samuel, pray for thy servants unto the Lord thy God that we die not. For we have added unto all our sins this evil to ask us a king. Mm. Grace convicts. Did you see that? Samuel, through his sermon and through this out of the ordinary supernatural circumstance, gets them to the point where they fear God and they admit the severity of what they've done. Listen to me. God's grace will not let you go your own way and make foolish and sinful decisions without chasing you down with conviction. 
Does God's grace forgive? Absolutely. We'll see that in a minute. But God's grace doesn't forgive our sin until after it's first convicted us of our sin. We aren't forgiven until we've asked to be forgiven. We won't ask to be forgiven until we've sensed and admitted that we did something wrong. Conviction, watch, it's often viewed as something negative, but I believe it's just as gracious as an act of God as His forgiveness is. Without conviction, we'd all go our own way and we wouldn't think twice about it. Sometimes God in His grace convicts us through a Samuel in our life. I'm talking about somebody that is willing to confront us right where we're about right where we're at about who we really are and what we've done. They're not, they don't have to be harsh about it, but they can be straight up and loving about it. The Samuel in our life can be our spouse. It can be our parents. It can be our grandparents. It can be a sibling. It can be a pastor, a youth pastor, a godly friend, a co-worker. But when God sends a Samuel to us, the, the, the message is very clear and it's very convicting. His message, Samuel's message, should come to us by way of an everyday conversation. Samuel's message of conviction can come to us by way of a song, by way of a sermon, by way of a text message, by way of a Facebook post, by way of a podcast, by way of a book. But when God sends Samuel our way, we know it. The message is clear. God wants us to realize this. We're guilty. God wants us to realize that we can't blame our personality. We can't blame our upbringing. We can't blame our environment. We can't blame our spiritual maturity level. We can't blame our boss. We can't blame our bad habits. We can't blame our church. God's conviction wants to get us to a point where the only person we can blame is ourselves. Then sometimes God's grace will convict us through, through a circumstance of life. Maybe it won't come like during a storm, a supernatural physical storm by way of mother nature but something will happen to us or around us that is out of the ordinary and God is trying to get our attention watch here Jesus did it with his own disciples after he fed the 5,000 he perceived in his own disciples you read the gospels how their heart wasn't right it kind of makes sense because they were they were they they were told by Jesus that they they're going away for a vacation I don't know if you remember this. I think it's John 6. Maybe not John 6, somewhere around there. They're, they're going on vacation. They had just done a lot of mighty deeds. And then Jesus is like, we got to get away for a while in the desert place where nobody is. You guys need to take a breather. On the way, they get interrupted because Jesus is a rock star. They follow Jesus. And Jesus doesn't say, hey, I'm ministering to my side. But you know what he says? We're going to have a church service right here. And then the miracle of the 5,000 comes out of it. By the way, sometimes some of God's greatest things done through you be, will be during an inconvenient time. And if you're closed off to God working through you because it's uncomfortable for you or because you got your own plans or because you're tired or because you're not in the mood, then you might be missing out on being used in some of the greatest ways God wants to use you. And God used them despite their reluctance. They didn't even believe that God could do it. God did it. And because they had a heart problem, God said it was a hard heart. And he sent them in a boat on the Sea of Galilee, knowing full well that he was going to boss Mother Nature around and, sent, and put them in a storm of their life. They were scared, saw Jesus walk on water. You know the story. After it was done, they fall on their knees in the boat, amazed at what God did. The Bible says they forgot the miracle of the loaves. They were heart of heart. God used that to revive them. And out of the ordinary experience. And this, he does the same thing with us. I'm not saying that every shocking experience of your life, every negative experience of your life, every trial of your life is because you sinned. That's, we understand there's another flip side to trials, and that's to strengthen your faith. 
So, so I'm not saying there's another storm, by the way, that God sent the disciples in and it was a time when they weren't wrong with God. They were right with God. And, and, and so, so there's a flip side to that coin. But, but listen to me, sometimes you do experience rough circumstances because God's trying to get your attention. Are you listening to me? There's some things at work that happen. There's some things at school that happen. There's some things in your health that happen. There's some things in your finances that happen. There's some out of the ordinary experiences that come out of nowhere. And that could very possibly be God trying to get your attention. He often uses circumstances kind of like doctors use shock paddles in the ER. He wants to shock your heart back into rhythm. He wants to get you back to a place of soft heartedness to him. That's the first aspect of God's grace. It convicts. Listen, friend, conviction isn't bad. I just talked to a lady that's visiting our church. I said, hey, what, what drew you to the church? She told me, I said, said are you enjoying uh, what you're hearing and experiencing when you come to service? And you know the number one thing that, that, that she's enjoying the most? And she says, you know what? Every time I go to church there, I feel like I've been to church. I said, what do you mean? Well, she said, my whole Christian life, I've always thought that you're supposed to feel good at church all the time. But she said, sometimes I, I, I need to be made to feel uncomfortable. Amen. Now, just so you know, it's not my aim to make you feel uncomfortable. The Holy Spirit does that good enough. But when you, when you preach next chapter, next verse, you're going to get into some uncomfortable passages of Scripture. And, and, and just so you know, there are a lot of churches that skip those things. And they won't preach expositionally because of what they're going to, what they know they have to preach. So they want to preach, the, they want to be able to pick the topics themselves. That's not how we're going to preach here because you need the whole counsel of God's word. We need the good, the, 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 the gentle, the exhortation, but we also need the rebuke every once in a while. In fact, we need it once a week at least because we're sinners. We're, we're just human beings. And, and so I, I appreciate that her mindset is changing in the fact that conviction isn't a bad thing. Like it's a good thing. It, it draws us into God's grace even deeper and even more because we can't be forgiven until we're first convicted. And that's the next aspect of God's grace. God's grace forgives. Look at verses 20 through 22. And Samuel said unto the people, fear not. You've done all this wickedness, yet turn not aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And turn ye not aside, for then should ye go after vain things, which cannot profit nor deliver, for they are vain. Watch here. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake, because it hath pleased the Lord to make you his people. Boy, you need to highlight that verse. That's an amazing demonstration of God's grace. That's how he's always worked with Israel. They sin against him. He chastises them. They ask for forgiveness. He forgives them. And the cycle started all over. And by the way, that cycle hasn't stopped. We participate in that same cycle. We sin, ask for forgiveness. God forgives and we sin again. Ask for forgiveness and God forgives. The long, watch here. The, the longer you're saved, the more you're growing to be like Christ, the, the, the more spread out that cycle should be. Are you watching me? So, 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 so a lot of times when we're in a bad season, here's what happens. We sin and then we ask forgiveness and we sin again real quick. The longer you're walking with God, the more spread out your sin should be. You'll never be sinless. You'll never be perfect. But your imperfection should be less. The closer you go to Christ. Does that make sense? But, but Israel, here's the point. Israel didn't deserve God's forgiveness. We don't deserve God's forgiveness. But if we did, it wouldn't be called grace. 
And that's precisely the point. God's grace forgives us even though we don't deserve it. Can I ask you a question? Where would you be right now if it weren't for God's grace? Can you imagine that for a moment? Where would you be if it weren't for God's second chances in your life? Where would your marriage be? Where would your kids be? Where would your health be? Where would your finances be? Where would your attitude be? What would your future look like if it wasn't for God's forgiveness? I'll answer the question generally. You'd be a mess. And I'd be a mess if it wasn't for God's forgiveness, which leads me in application to ask you this question. Are you extending God's grace and forgiveness to others like God extends it to you? I have to go there because, because that's what God's grace ought to motivate us to do, to give grace. See, in life, people do toward us what we do towards God. They sin against us. The relationship is damaged. They ask for forgiveness. We forgive. And guess what happens? They sin against us again. The cycle continues. Do you forgive others through their cycle of sin towards you like God forgives you in your cycle of sin toward him? Well, but I'm not, I'm not God. Well, I'm not either. But we're told to forgive Ephesians 4.32 as God forgives. How do we do that? And how many times do we have to do that? You're asking the same question that Peter asked Jesus. How many times do I have to forgive the same dude for the same thing? He said seven times, right? And he thought he was really good. And Jesus blew that up with a crazy high number to make the point that, that it's not about keeping score. It's about giving grace. It's, it's not about how much do I have to forgive. It's about how much I've been forgiven. Hey, hey, here's how you give grace when you feel like you can't. You remind yourself, watch here, that you'll never be asked to give more grace to others than what you've been given by God. The, the grace that God has given you will always be greater than what somebody has done to you. And the comprehension of that grace will be the sole determining factor for how well you're able to give grace to others. Why is it important for you to not just gloss over this aspect of the fact that God's grace forgives? Because your capacity to forgive others is solely determined on your comprehension of how much God forgives you. You've got to understand this. This can't be a, a little theological sub-point in your life. God's grace and that he forgives you every time for everything ought to humble you to the core. It ought to humble you. Here's the third aspect of God's grace. It instructs. Look at verses 23 through 25. Moreover, as for me, Samuel's talking, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. Man, that's awesome. Praise the Lord for spiritual leaders that don't give up on us. But I will teach you the good and the right way. And here's the good and the right way. Fear the Lord. Serve him in truth with all your heart. For consider how great things he hath done for you. But... If ye shall do wickedly, ye shall be consumed, both ye and your king. Now look up here. Samuel didn't just confront them with their sin, allow them to be convicted and forgiven and go on his way. He did what a good parent ought to do. He instructed them in a better way. Because that's what grace does. It teaches us. Look at how Paul, uh, Titus put it. Titus 2, uh, 11 through 12. For the grace of God. That bringeth salvation, watch here, hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. God's grace doesn't just save us, it sanctifies us. 
It teaches us how to live a better, more pure life. It, gets, it loves us right where we're at. It just loves us too much to leave us that way. It saves us. It forgives us. It redeems us. It changes us. Then it places a clear expectation on our life moving forward. Here's, Samuel, here's Samuel's instruction to Israel. Fear the Lord, serve him with all your heart, and stay thankful. If you fail to do that, there will be consequences. And the same is true for us. Watch. Just because God's grace has wiped the slate clean and forgiven us and made us right with the Lord doesn't mean that we go out all week and live it up and then come back the next Sunday for confession time. The Apostle Paul said, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? What is Paul saying? Grace is not a license to sin. Grace is an empowerment to overcome sin. God's grace will forgive you every time for your sin, but God's grace will instruct you to overcome sin moving forward. And that's why the author of Hebrews talks about God's throne, watch here, as a throne of grace. You remember that verse in Hebrews? You can come to God's throne of grace boldly. Because when you get into a situation where you're tempted to retreat back into the same sin that God just forgave you of, you can come boldly to the throne of grace to find help in time of need. It's incredible. And when you come to that throne of grace in your prayer closet, even in the midst of an intense temptation, here's where you'll be, you'll be met with God's grace by way of your high priest, Jesus Christ himself, who has been in all points tempted just like we are, which, which means this. He knows what we're facing. He can feel what we're facing. He's walked where we've walked. He's been tempted how we've been tempted. And he can give us the grace and strength and power to overcome every temptation because he himself has overcome it first. Man, it's good. It's good. God's grace instructs us. Don't take advantage of God's grace. Are you hearing me? Don't do it. Why? Because Samuel warns them. If you do that, you just think you can, get, you, you can just kind of dip in on God's grace when you want and then go live it up, come back, dip in on God's grace. You better be careful. God's grace will ultimately stop. And you will be consumed, he says. Consumed. That, 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 that being consumed comes in all kinds of different forms. The New Testament form of, of God's judgment, how he consumes us in Romans chapter 1, is he just lets us have our way. No, he gives us over to our reprobate minds. And so when we start sinning, God says, okay, I'm going to let your sin consume you. I'm going to stop sending Samuels in your life. I'm going to stop sending on ordinary circumstances to get your attention. And I'm just going to let you be consumed. And I'm telling you, that is, that is a dangerous place to be. You don't want to be there. You don't want to be there. So don't take advantage of God's grace. I want to give you one more aspect. It's my favorite. Sounds a little weird at first, but it's going to make sense. Grace reconfigures. Now, what do I mean by that? Now, pay close attention. We often speak of God's grace but we stop too short. We talk about God's grace can, can convict and forgive and transform and change. Those are all worthy topics or I wouldn't have spent the first 90% of my sermon preaching on them. But God's grace, and this passage illustrates, something beyond that. Now follow this. The sin of Israel, the very act, you need to get this, of rejecting God's authority 
and demanding a new and worldly form of human government and rulership, watch, is not only forgiven by God, but it is actually reconfigured by God into a new instrument of his grace. Watch, the very existence of a human king in Israel, a result of Israel's sinful and faithless demands, is reconfigured into a savior. I want to say it again. A human king, which is a result of Israel's sin, was later reconfigured into a savior. The institution, watch here, of kingship, though it wasn't in God's timing, King Saul was not God's choice, but his grace made the best of a bad situation. And that King Saul paved the way for 1 Samuel chapter 16, where we're introduced to King David. And a lot of kings would come after David, but, but it would culminate, it would climax, it would pave the way for the king of kings. From the seed of David. That is the King Jesus, the King that would never let us down, the King that would save us from our sins, the King that would redeem all of mankind and bring us into a relationship with God. Now, what does this teach us? It teaches us that, that, that in the hands of God, even our failures and even our tragically sinful choices can be completely remade and reconfigured into something new and redemptive. Goodness, this is good. The life of Joseph. Man, it confirms this principle to be true. After his brothers tried to kill him and instead chose to sell him into slavery, fast forward several decades and God's redeeming this in Joseph's life and he becomes the second in charge basically in Egypt while his brothers were starving as a result of a famine. Watch here. Joseph, in his position of leadership, was the overseer of all the food distribution. And his brothers showed up to get food, not knowing Joseph would be the distributor. In fact, they didn't even recognize Joseph. It had been so long since they had seen him until Joseph introduced himself to them. And they were fearful. They thought Joseph would exact revenge on them, which the world would say he was justified in doing so. But instead, Joseph said this to them, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. In other words, God took their failures, their tragically sinful choices, reconfigured them and made them into something new and redemptive in Joseph's life. It's called God's grace. And he does the same thing in our life. Listen to me. His grace will pick up the pieces and it'll collect all the collateral damage of our sin. It'll put it all together in just the right way. It'll reconfigure it and somehow still use it to accomplish his will in our life. Man, do you know what that tells me? Failure is never final. It's not. If you're still breathing, God's still working. Even if what you've given him to work with is completely broken and shattered. If you'll bring him your kings. Those things that you've replaced him with. If you'll bring those to him, you'll repent of those, lay them on the altar. Here's what will happen. His grace will redeem your regret. His grace will reconfigure your sinful choice. His grace will use that false idol, that false king, that tragically sinful choice, and somehow, some way, reconfigure it for his good and his glory. Does anybody agree with that? 
I know I'm preaching to the choir in an afternoon service like this. But I'm also preaching to a bunch of sinners. And I'm one of them. I talked a little bit about it in the invitation this morning, but the accuser of the brethren is really good at trying to get us to give up because we are never a failure until we quit. And the devil knows if, he, if we quit, then we fail. And the way he's going to get you to quit is to think that there is not a better future. The way he's going to get you to quit is to think that what you've done, it cannot be overcome. The way he's going to get you to quit is think that, hey, you've tried to overcome this addiction three or four or five times already and you failed every time. So just stop. He's going to try to get you to give up on your marriage. He's going to try to get you to lose hope for your kids. Give up on, on, on some kind of dream he's put in your heart to accomplish for him. He's going to try to get you to quit because that's when we become failures, when we stop, when we quit. But here's what you got to remember. That God knows you're a sinner. And, and, and he has become a specialist in reconfiguration. Like he has become an amazing ER trauma doctor. When our sin puts us flat on our back and our heart, spiritual heart stops beating and we lose all sense of taste and smell for Jesus. <laughs> oh man. That's COVID talk for you. He can shock our heart back into rhythm through a Samuel, through a circumstance. He'll convict you. And until you let that conviction chase you down. Those levels of conviction will get stronger and stronger and stronger and he will chase you down. Has that ever happened in your life? Amen. And when you finally let the, the conviction catch you and you say, God, it's, I'm guilty, he forgives instantly and completely. Confess your sins, he's faithful and just forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. It's an amazing aspect of God's grace. And then, you know what God's grace does? It says get in the word of God and start living a better way. Because now that I've forgiven you, my grace is going to come alongside of you as your best partner in life. And I'm going to teach you not to say that again. I'm going to teach you not to click on that again. I'm going to teach you not to purchase that again. I'm going to teach you not to drink that again. I'm going to teach you not to smoke that again. I'm going to teach you not to go to that party again. I'm going to, I'm going to teach you how you can live life without those friends. He's going to teach you a better way. God's grace does that as you expose yourself to the word of God. And then what it does is he reconfigures that. And it might be two or three or four decades later, but Romans 8, 28 becomes so vivid in your brain and so vivid in your life because chapters later, you look back at that, at that mistake and it's like, wow, it's still very real. And maybe you're still, you got a hint of consequence that you'll face the rest of your life for it. But God has made a miracle of my mess. God has made a testimony of, of something that I tried to destroy. God has reconfigured and redeemed my regret and, and he's placed me on a better path. He, 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 he's pulled me out of the miry clay. He's set my feet on a solid rock. He's given me a new song. He, he, he's redeemed my regret, reconfigured it, and now he's getting glory from it. Amen. And that is, that is like the four-dimensional grace of God. Amen. I know that, that I've been in this study all week, so I, I'm... It's in me. It's, it's deep within me. I've been thanking God for his grace. 
all week and you come for meat and lunch and all of that and it's a little harder maybe for you to, to grasp that. But, but I want you for a moment just to, just to respond in, in worship to the grace of God in your life. Whether that grace right now is convicting you, whether that grace is, has forgiven you and it has, whether it's that you needed to hear that grace is instructing you in a better way, or whether you just need to be reminded that grace is reconfiguring you in your tragically sinful choices. I, I, I want you to envelop yourself with those four dimensions on every side of you. And I want you to respond by just saying this, God, thank you for your grace. And give me what I need to show that same grace to other people. Because maybe you need to be a Samuel for somebody else and a source of conviction. And you've known you need to speak up for a friend, a spouse, a child, a coworker. God, help me to forgive like your grace has forgiven me. God, if you give me opportunities, help me to instruct and show and, and, and be by example, give, give, give a better way. And God, help me to give hope to people who've lost it because of their choices. Yeah, I don't know how, how it's spoken to your heart, but I, I do know this. We need to say thank you to God. So Miss Kay, why don't you come and, and play grace.